A decade ago, I was on a TV show, a debate on the future of God in front of a live audience. And it was going fine until... Partway through, they opened the mic to audience questions. A man in a red t-shirt, glasses and disheveled hair stepped up. What's your name? Uh, Leonard Mladenov. He said he was a physicist working with Stephen Hawking and he wanted to teach me what was wrong about the things I had said. Would you like to have a short course in quantum mechanics sometime so that we can straighten out your slightly misuse of quantum notation? We had a back and forth. It got a little heated. Okay, well, <laughs> all right, I, I, uh, I know what all each of those words means. I, I still don't think I... Do you, sir, believe in the infinite? Um, I, 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 but that was only the beginning of our story because I decided to take him up on his offer to teach me. I would be honored, sir, and I accept your offer with great gratitude. And out of that, a friendship grew. I did learn a lot about my misconceptions, some of them, regarding quantum physics. In turn, he learned to meditate. We wrote a book together from our different perspectives, and we've only grown in mutual admiration. So, it only makes sense that I would invite Leonard to join me here, because he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met, because he wrote for Star Trek and co-authored books with Stephen Hawking, because he has a big heart and a great mind. And yes, because we still disagree on a lot of things. I remember asking you when we wrote our book together, why are there laws of nature? And you said, we don't know. All I know are my perceptions, and I could be hallucinating in the middle of my brain, in the middle of space, and Deepak doesn't really exist, you're part of a dream. All those things could be true, but I say as a scientist, I'll believe it when there's evidence of it. We know that we exist. There are people who would argue against that too, yeah. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Leonard Milodinow is many different people wrapped into one. A physicist, writer, I would say a philosopher too, a riddler, and a very deep thinker. As a scientist, he's been on a lifelong quest to find evidence of how our universe is constructed. But as a storyteller, he's been on an equally long journey to solve some of the mysteries of existence. These two worlds came together when he was a young man, working on Star Trek. You were a writer for Star Trek. You're right. Tell me about that. What was that experience like and why did you get involved in it? Well, I, I used to write short stories in third grade. So I, uh, in addition to you know, my interest in the old, when I was a kid in math and chemistry, I, I liked writing. So you know, I, I kind of like science, math, and writing ever since I can remember. And uh, well, I got my first job at Caltech. I know this is going to sound silly, but somehow I, the idea popped into my head, probably from some kind of consciousness uh, effects, that that I, uh, instead of writing short stories, which I always continue to do as a hobby, I should write a screenplay because I'm going to be, if I'm going to be in L.A., L.A. area, at least I should start writing movies. So I 
while I was at Caltech, I wrote a screenplay. And in fact, in my book, Feynman's Rainbow, where I talk about my relationship with Feynman, Richard Feynman. He was at Caltech. He was at Caltech, and he was an icon. I mean, he's in his day, he was like what the Stephen Hawking was yeah. later. And I uh, talk about how he encouraged that. Like, I was a little bit embarrassed to even tell people I was writing a screenplay because in, in physics, I'll, I'll tell you something about physicists. And physicists tend to think that physics is the is the ultimate, or maybe math, or maybe some of them even philosophy. But they think that knowledge of the universe is the ultimate. So I was kind of hiding it, but I got to know Feynman, and I would tell him about it, and he thought, whatever you're passionate about, do it. Follow your passions. And he taught me that what's important is following your interests. Don't worry about whether the problem is big or small or important or not important, uh, interesting to other people or not interesting. Just do what 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 you're inspired to do. And so I wrote the screenplay while I was there and uh, eventually, just like everybody else in Hollywood, you know, trying to get people to see it. And eventually I, I got a job writing a pretty crappy TV show based on my scripts that I had written. And then I got a, an agent from that and then I got better shows. And I wrote it for MacGyver and then we had this horrible thing. I thought it was a horrible thing called a writer's strike. And I talk about how chance affects your life, randomness, and how part of that is that things that even look bad can turn out good. It's very hard to know because there's so much chance in life. And this is one of those situations in my life where it looked horrible. It was a six-month strike. Mm -hmm. But during those six months, the people at Star Trek had a time to read. And one of the things they read was my you know, my MacGyver script. Mm-hmm. And the day uh, the strike ended, they hired me on Star Trek. They said, "Oh, we love you." And I went there and I worked for them. And so, how was that experience? Well, that you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It's one of my favorite shows. Well, I, you know, when I got to Star Trek, I thought that the, one of the things that attracted them to me was that I'm a physicist. Mm-hmm. So my first day there, we're at a story meeting, and it was uh, we're sitting around a table. And there were maybe I don't know eight of the eight people. There were produ- producers, writers, and uh, I pitched this idea, which I was very excited about because it had real physics in it. And I, mm-hmm. this, this was based on neutrinos and solar flares and blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I take you know you can only take about thirty seconds. You tell them your idea, and then you, you know you hope they they go for it. And I'm going, and I'm all excited. I tell them this idea, and I'm looking around the room, and they're all kind of kind of stone faced. And then the guy next to me, who was my immediate boss, who was one of the producers, he looks at me and he goes. Shut up, you fucking egghead. (laughs) The last time I ever mentioned physics uh, or real science at Star Trek, I mean, they liked the aura of science and they liked the the idea that they were exploring the universe, but they just cared about the human or the the emotional stories. The story. The story and the science was uh, window dressing. Well, there's a saying amongst writers that uh, facts don't move people. Right. But when you give them facts and you create a story and emotion around the facts, then the facts become very appealing uh, if there's a story around the facts. And because as humans, we're storytellers. We started with mythology and then religion and theology and philosophy. Science is another form of storytelling, actually, looking at facts, but then creating a story out of that, isn't it? Right, exactly. I mean... I think that scientists are excited by the stories that they they think that that we feel are. Say I don't want to say true because I, I I'll be caught saying true sometimes, but mm-hmm. really I, I don't mean true. I mean uh, consistent with the experiments and observations we've made thus far. That's what I mean Correct. by true. Yeah. But but we get excited by 
by finding the, the story. So, so it's very exciting to consider the origin of the universe because that means something to me. If I was just looking at the crack in the wall and trying to explain the physics of the crack in the wall, I mean, I could, I could imagine getting interested in that if I found some interesting aspects of it. But in general, that is not as interesting to me as studying the origin of the universe because right. the origin of the universe has to do with how I got here. Exactly. So, Leonard, what is this about humans that they, they want to tell a story, uh, whether it's a scientific story or a theological story, or even a mythological story? Well, the human brain is built for curiosity and exploration. About 100,000 or 150,000 years ago, there was a climactic problem, and our species dwindled in numbers to maybe 500, 1,000, a few thousand, depends who you believe. And the survivors, the ones who survived that calamity, seemed to be more exploratory, more curious, more adventurous. So they survived because they had other resources that they had been able to gather, food, water, shelter, whatever it was, because they were explorers. And it was after that that humans started spreading around the world. And this exploration knack that we have is not just physical, it's mental, it's curiosity, it's why we do science, it's why we do art to explore the world in another way. Why we want to know. What we want to know, we want to experiment. We just want to, we're just curious, we want to play with things, we want to, to try things. And so that drives both art and science. As scientists, we, we want to know where we came from and what we're, what's our place in the world. That's what Stephen Hawking did in his first book. It focused it on what's our place in the world on the brief history of time. And we've always wanted to know that, and we've tried to do that, whether it's stories of creation, that the world is on a turtle's back, I mean, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. Today we have different stories. Mm -hmm. um, and fictional stories as well. We're exploring relationships, you're exploring, you, you read science fiction, sometimes you're exploring the possibilities of other planets, other aliens and whatnot, and it's all about this elastic thinking that we can do in our brain, which other animals don't do as much of, is comes back from this time long time ago where, where we needed that to survive. And it's that, um, that elastic drive to, to try and play with things and to test things out and to explore mentally and physically that, that leads to literature and art and science. You don't believe in God, but you once told me you believe in the aliens. <laughs> okay, so you taught me to examine myself <laughs> and be mindful of what I'm thinking and maybe contradictions. And, mm -hmm. and I found that this is one big contradiction for me because, and I, and I freely admit this, that I talk about only wanting evidence-based ideas, right? So do we have evidence for aliens? Well, we don't have evidence of aliens, but theoretical basis, we should expect them because, uh, you know, this equation called the Drake equation, and it says, oh, how many, uh, we, we live outside the sun, so we know that living things can happen you know, on a, on a star like our sun. So we, we can calculate how many stars there are like our sun. And, and, uh, and then we can say, oh, if there's a star like our sun, what's the chance that there's planets around that star that are in the zone, what they call the Goldilocks, Goldilocks zone, zone yeah. where, where it's habitable. We mm -hmm. can calculate all that, right? And then you can calculate how long does it take to evolve from the earliest life to living things and how long of those planets. And you can calculate all those things and you can come up with a probability of 
life, of, of, of intelligent life. And then mm-hmm. you can say, what are the chances that they would find us? I mean, they're pretty much zero, probably, because this universe is too big, big. right? So, but I can still believe in them because of these other probabilities. But this guy, who was very smart, um, and this was, uh, he told me, wait a minute, Leonard, you're missing one of these factors that you're talking about. The factor that I, that I was missing that is still missing today, even though people are trying to figure it out, is what are the chances given uh, the Earth with the primordial soup that we had, and all the lightning and uh, you know and the energy that's coming into the you know what are the chances of making those first macro molecules of genetics and of life, or what were the first molecules? So we know how you can get from the simplest life like a bacteria to a human. We understand that. We do. How do you get the first bacteria with DNA or RNA in it? How does the first RNA molecule form? There's people around the country still trying to figure that out, and nobody knows. So we so we what we don't know in particular is the probability of that first step, right? The first living thing on earth, no matter how simple, whether it's just a bag of protein or whatever it is, we don't know the probability of that happening. So there's a gap. So when I'm doing my big grand explanation of the chances of life and the chances of seeing the life, the alien life, I'm missing that. So I really can't say, I have to say, I don't know. And yet in my heart, I just believe there's damn aliens around, you know, there there are aliens. Okay. (laughs) Okay, this is good. This is good. You believe in aliens, but you don't believe in God. It's not that I see even evidence against God. I don't see evidence for God. Did the experience of your parents have anything to do with that? Your parents were from? From uh, Poland. Yeah. Yeah, they they went through the Holocaust. My mother was in a a labor camp like the one in Schindler's List, and my dad was uh, first in the uh, Jewish underground fighting the Nazis and... uh, one of the leaders of the underground in his town, and then later in the Buchenwald concentration camp for the last year of the war. And when he was liberated, he uh, when I knew him, he weighed 165 pounds, and when he was liberated, he was 85 pounds. Oh, my God. The experience of your parents influenced uh, your upbringing, your childhood, right? Yes, uh, very different influences from both my mother and my father, who they each reacted to it quite differently. Uh, My mother was very fearful, always expecting the world to collapse around her again. She was about 16 when the Holocaust happened, and uh, I remember her telling me how all her friends and the neighbors and everyone you know, turned against them and they would uh, tease them and say, wait till Hitler gets here, he's going to get rid of you Jews. And um, her sister, who was a couple years older than her, uh, was killed by the Nazis, actually uh, in a way trying to defend my mother because her sister, in order to get some more protection for my mother, uh, married a, a Jewish policeman. Those were the Nazis would recruit people to keep order in the Jewish community. They were the Jewish policemen, hmm. and and they had special privileges. So her sister wanted to protect her, so she married this this guy so she could get the special privileges. And uh, and then at some point the Nazis decided they didn't like these Jewish policemen and they killed them and their entire families. When I was growing up, she was so fearful. One time she used to call me uh, when I was in graduate school uh, every Thursday evening. And uh, one time I was out on a date on a Thursday evening, and my roommate answered the phone and said that I'm not there. So my mother calls back in another half hour, and my roommate says, he's still not here. And my mother's going, but he always talks to me on Thursdays. She said, well, he went out with someone. 
And uh, my mother calls back another half hour, and pretty soon she's calling back every 15 minutes. And then, you know, she's telling my roommate, why are you, be honest with me, why are you lying to me? You know, I, I know my son's dead, and why don't you just tell me? I'm going to find out. <laughs> so my roommate have, had to take the phone off the hook to keep my mother from calling. And uh, when I got home around midnight, she kind of like said, what's, what, you know, <laughs> what's with your mother? You got to control her. <laughs> and uh, so I said, uh, well, it is weird to think that your mother thinks it's more likely that, that you were killed than had gone on a date. <laughs> but anyway, that was my mother. And my father uh, was quite the opposite. He was uh, very, I remember him being very strong and optimistic you know, heroic, and he had a, a wife and a kid before the war who were both killed, and he didn't talk too much about the war. Neither of them did, except for a period of a couple years when around the time I graduated high school. I don't know, for some reason, they opened up, and then they closed up again. Did you grow up scared? I, I you know, I wasn't very self-aware when I was growing up, so it's hard to go back and say, what was I scared? Because I wasn't thinking about it. I... I I don't feel like I, I grew up scared, but I, I know that in my you know adult existence that mm -hmm. I definitely have some of those traits of my mother's that I mm -hmm. that I was mentioning. They had a mixed feeling about God, so they were raised Orthodox, and and I was raised to go to the synagogue every Saturday, and of course on the holidays, and we kept kosher, semi-kosher. We were too poor to be kosher because that involves getting kosher meat, which is expensive and stuff. But they had the attitude uh, that. If God existed, the Holocaust couldn't have happened, or any God who lets the Holocaust is, you know, not worth uh, worshiping or something like that. That they people say everything happens for a reason, or you know, but what reason could it be that have my father's little, little two-year-old kid killed like that, you know, mm -hmm. or his wife, or my, you know, their parents and their siblings? But you know, that's only part of it because not only is it hard for me to say. God is, is there a just God? That must mean that my whole family, my whole, all my ancestors must have been pretty evil people for it to be just that they were slaughtered. But as a scientist, I, as you know, I look for things that are based on evidence and observation, and I see no, no evidence. You know, Bertrand Russell gave this example of when, when they were talking about, he's a, a philosopher and mathematician who lived sure. about 100 years ago. I mean, I know you know who he mm -hmm. is, but in case people don't. He said, as a philosopher, mathematician, I say, as a scientist, uh, I'll believe it when when there's evidence of it. And you know, the joke is that I think Bertrand Russell dies and goes to purgatory, where God's deciding, do you go to heaven or hell? And God says, Hey, Bertrand, you you are an atheist. Why should I, I let you into heaven? And 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 Russell says to God, he says. Uh, well, I don't believe if I didn't believe in you, it wasn't my fault, it was your fault. You didn't <laughs> supply enough evidence. There's another story, by the way, about that. It comes from India, and it's about a fellow who actually really believes in God. And there's a big flood in his little village. And, uh, you know, the neighbors said that the flood is coming and uh, we need to escape. And he says, No, God will take care of me. And the flood comes, and you know, the house starts to sink. The neighbor said, There's still time, we can go. We have a jeep, you can come with us. He said, No, God will take care of me. So then the waters keep rising, and the neighbors come in a boat and say, We can take you away from here, otherwise, you'll drown. And he said, no, God will take care of me. He was a real believer, the opposite of you. And uh, 
So finally, the waters rise, and uh, the bus is gone, and the motorcycle is gone, and the boats are gone, and there's no one to help him, and he drowns. And finally, he does meet God, and he says, "You know, you let me down. I believed in you all my life, and um, you didn't save me." And I spent all my life worshiping you. He said, "What do you expect? I sent you a motorcycle. <laughs> I sent you a bus. I sent you a boat. What do you wanted? A helicopter?" <laughs> okay, that's a good. That's a good point. You can sometimes you can see God where you look. Yeah, you know, I read Stephen Hawking's first book before you joined him, and you know, the last sentence of the book was, "If we found out what the singularity is." We would know the mind of God. He used that expression. He did, to but end he end. meant it metaphorically. All physicists, in a way, believe in God, even though we won't call it God, because we believe in the laws of physics. That, there's, mm-hmm. that we believe that there are no miracles, but we believe in an order in nature. Why, you know, why do I spend all my time trying to figure out the mathematical laws of physics? Because I believe that there are mathematical laws of physics. Well, why? What, what, who says that there should be? I guess that's God. But mm-hmm. as Stephen used to say because we talked about this quite a bit, you know, that, well, that's just substituting, that's just semantics, a substituting one mystery for another. You say, okay, who made the laws? Uh, we needed someone to make the laws. That's God. Well, it's the laws. I mean, it's just another word for the laws. But I remember asking you when we wrote our book together, why are the laws of nature? And you said, we don't know. We don't. That's there. We, we don't. That's what I'm saying. So why do laws to say of it's, nature it's no exist? answer, though. We don't know anymore when we call it God. That doesn't mm-hmm. add anything to our knowledge. The idea of whether there is a uh, whether science describes a external objective reality or a subjective reality, or whether you don't really exist, but the whole universe only exists in my mind because mm-hmm. I can't even prove that you really exist because all I know are my perceptions, and I could be hallucinating in the middle of my brain, in the middle of space, and Deepak doesn't really exist. You're part of a dream. All those things could be true, and they've been discussed, uh, you know, um, Bishop Barclay in the yeah. 19th century, uh, um, the Greeks talked about. So, so I'm, whether or not what's the nature of reality, it's, it's a fine question to debate if you want, but it has nothing to do with science. So uh, as a physicist or as any scientist, whether what you're doing describes what it's describing, it doesn't really matter. What what matters is it's consistent. So if I make if I use my theory to make a prediction and I test it and it works, and then I make another prediction and it works. I think that's the faith in science. That well, some well, but I understand what you're saying. Some you, you could say scientists have faith that what they're doing describes an objective reality. Mm-hmm. Most science friends of mine just don't care. They don't think about it. They go, here's the theory. Does it I make a prediction, you go in the lab, and, and the prediction works. Now, if I go in the lab 25 times, it works all 25 times. It's not like it's capricious. Correct. If it, now, whether or not that means there's an external reality or there's no external reality, as long as it, whoever's, whoever is giving me this illusion makes it a consistent illusion, I can keep doing my work, and it makes sense. Are we creating models of reality in science, or are we describing reality? That depends. I mean, I might be describing my illusions. 
I, I might just be some psychotic bowl of agar with some brain cells. Maybe one of those is floating in space, and that's my consciousness. And none of this room exists. I'm just. This is just the illusion. Maybe I'm really in a lab, and I'm a bunch of one of these, you know, bunch of these brain cells growing in a petri dish, and nothing exists outside of me. But I have the sensations and the perceptions that all this does exist, and and it's consistent. If I punch myself in the nose, you know, or I bump into the wall every time it hurts. So I don't really worry if the wall is real. I just avoid it. So that's the way a physicist think. They 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 just move along and they and they try to explain Maybe whatever. Maybe neither the wall nor your body is real. Maybe only the pain is real. Maybe only the pain is real. Is pain real? Is everything just a perceptual experience? When we come back, we delve into Leonard's life and that of a butterfly. I want to tell you about a technology called Viome.com. That's V-I-O-M-E.com, which is revolutionizing the whole health industry. Viome not only analyzes your gut microbiome, but can recommend the unique foods to avoid as well as to enjoy to keep your gut healthy. But everyone has a different gut, and not all guts need the same fuel, which is why I have done the Viome test myself and can recommend it to you as well. For the first time, Viome is now available for only $199. Just a few months ago, it was $399. So please take advantage of what this test can offer you and your family. Go to Viome.com to order your gut intelligence test today. That's V-I-O-M-E dot com. Your diet is the most powerful tool you have to affect change in your health, and you now have it in your hands. Welcome back. We are talking with my friend Leonard Maladnow about the big questions. God, science, and the nature of reality. The questions that have sparked debate for millennia. There is nothing bigger or older than the universe. Where did we come from? How did the universe come into being? So how did you come to work with Stephen Hawking? Well, my, my first book was uh, A History of Curved Space and Geometry and How It Works in Physics. It was called Euclid's Window. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephen read it, and he, he liked it, and he was looking for someone to work with, and he wanted someone who understood physics, and he wanted someone who he could write with. And I, one day I just got a call from my agent after I had published that book, and she said... Uh, I don't know if this is going to work out, but uh, Stephen Hawking just called and wants to know if you'll work with him. <laughs> and I said, hmm, let me, let me think. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it over for about you know half a second, and um, that was amazing. Yeah. I worked with him and knew him for his last uh, 15 years of his life, and he already couldn't talk. He, he could only communicate through the computer. What changed was uh, with the progression of the disease, uh, at first he could use his 
thumb, mm-hmm. and later he couldn't anymore, and he they put a he, could, he used to twitch his cheek to communicate. He had a motion detector on his glasses, so a, tw- a twitch of the cheek was like a click of the mouse, and so he would. For him, composing sentences was like playing a video game. There would be a cursor that went from row to row. There would be like, let's say, six rows of letters of the alphabet, and he would pick the one he wanted. And in that way, he could communicate about six words a minute. Today, we permit this next great leap into the cosmos. Because we are human, and our nature is to fly. So if you saw him on TV, it was all an illusion. Uh, They would give him the questions weeks in advance, and then he would take a long time to compose the answers. And when I knew him and got to be friends with him, I did a lot of the answering for him, and then he would just edit it. But on TV, he would just uh, click the mouse and it would launch the answer. So they would ask a question, and, and he would launch the answer. And it looked like somehow he was miraculously talking through the computer, but it was very tedious and difficult for him. How to... was it writing a book then? He had such a iron will and determination. You know, if I it was I had some problem at home or I had a, an ache or a pain, or how could I possibly think to myself, this is a problem, when I'm sitting there and watching this guy who can't move, who's, you know, twitching his but cheeks. But whose mind goes across the universe. Well, that's even it. worse, right? It's entrapped in this body and mm-hmm. he can't get the words out. And just to say the simplest things to me could take five or six minutes to, to, to get out. And so he had such a rough life and was so happy and 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 approached it with such you know gusto that you became immune to little things that could be wrong with you because what an idiot you must be to let that get you down when this guy, you know, is dealing with that. You know, he had he was a very stubborn, which helped him I'm sure in that aspect. You know, when we, we were writing the book, we would have many discussions just as you and I did, you know, over how to do this or that or what to say. And we'd go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you'd think I'd wear him down because it's so hard for him to even uh, compose a sentence. But it was me who got worn down, and I go, okay, I'm tired of arguing with you. So uh, if a guy who can't even move can wear you down, you can imagine the kind of will that he has, you know? Is there a limitation to the ideas humans can generate? Is there a limitation to our imagination? And if there is no limitation to the ideas that we can generate or the imagination that we have or our collective imagination and the collective ideas because ideas have, people have never run out of ideas, then is there a limitation to the stories we tell? And if there is none, then are these stories going to create new realities for us? Well, you know, my initial instinct would be to say that there is no limitation and that given time as we learn more and we develop and culture grows and we're basing our new ideas on old ideas it's not like we're making that big a jump we're climbing rather than jumping but as a scientist I tend to think yes there probably are limitations uh, because our brains evolved to live in the world that we that we live in uh, and because we need to survive in it we're like we talked if you look think about a bat a bat perceives the world differently than a human, right? So our imagination is very tailored to the world that we live in. When you ask someone, that's why if you ask someone to imagine five dimensions, they have a hard time, right? You have a hard time to imagine what that looks like. Or infinite dimensions. Well, but yeah, even five or four. And why do you have trouble with four? 
because we live in three. Mm. If we lived in four, you could do four just fine. We would have evolved to handle it. And then if I said, imagine five, then you'd have trouble, right? An ant that that pretty much can't go up and down and lives just crawling on the surface of things, its brain, it probably imagines only two dimensions. It has a hard time if you pick it up and put it down somewhere else. Like, what the hell happened? You know, it, I can't imagine that. Well, we can't imagine being picked up in the fifth dimension and put back somewhere, right? So, you know, it could be that there are such limitations to us, uh, to our minds that are natural based on our, our evolution. Uh, recently, I've been doing a new book on perception, and I was reading about this butterfly that's called the Painted Lady. Oh, I used and to catch Painted Ladies when I was a kid. So, Painted Lady smells through her antenna, uh, yeah, tastes yeah. food through her feet. Yeah. Has 30,000 so lenses to her eyes uh-huh. and hears through the wings. Uh-huh. What is reality? The reality to different species is, I'm sure, quite different. So I what we are we describing is a human our... experience. And what even... we are describing with what? Anytime we describe the physical world, we are describing oh, a human experience. I 100% agree with you. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. And that experience and that knowing has to be in consciousness, even the knowing of the brain. And a consciousness is formless, and being formless, because you just said, there's no evidence that we can see it, right? Consciousness is without form. And if it is without form, it, I can't touch consciousness, I can't see it, I can't smell it, I can't taste it. But without consciousness, I wouldn't have any of those experiences. So is perception. And in our case, it's a species-specific perception that gives rise to concepts like body, brain, the universe. That's my worldview anyway which we argued about in our yeah, book. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand parts of it, and parts of it I have difficulty understanding. Yeah, yeah. But some of it just ends up being semantics, I think. Yeah, a lot of it yeah. ends up being semantics, yeah. Because if reality is one entity, then mind, brain, body, a rock, a star, a galaxy have to be one fundamental whatever it is. It's a mystery. I, I, you would agree that existence is a mystery, right? Mm-hmm. You would also agree that awareness of existence is a mystery. Mm-hmm. We know that we exist. There are people who would argue, <laughs> who would argue against that too. Yeah, it adds to the mystery to me, anyway. I think consciousness does remain a mystery, and. I wrote a book called Subliminal about the unconscious mind. Correct. And it was about how in your brain there are a lot of processes that you're not aware of that control what you feel, what you think, decisions you make. And in fact, in your biology, your whole autonomic nervous system, you're not aware of yes. what's happening right now. And it's, But it's interesting, it's very important to learn about that, to understand what makes you tick and what makes you do the things you do. But that's and that's the unconscious mind, which is so important to us and to other species. Uh, maybe even more important, they may have less consciousness. But I wanted to write about consciousness then, and I talked to a friend of mine, Christoph Koch, who was a whom then, I know very well. You know, oh, you know Christoph now, friend, right? Yeah, yeah, good friend. And uh, so he was a professor at Caltech, but he told me don't write a book about consciousness because our scientific understanding of consciousness today is like the scientific understanding of electromagnetism in 1800 where we just, we, there were some phenomena that were there. We had no idea what it was. And he says, if you ask me, and, I, and he said, and I do research on consciousness, and you ask me, define consciousness, I can't even define it for you. But we'll wait 100 years, and we'll see if there's anything to that. You know, I often am asked, what is spirituality? 
And uh, my only answer is bewilderment and astonishment at the mystery of existence. You know, Rumi, the, my favorite poet, he said, exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. Exchange your cleverness for bewilderment. That's the beginning of curiosity. Well, I, I like that, and that makes me a very spiritual person. <laughs> you explore the world out there, and I explore the world in here. And I think they're complementary in many ways. So I'm very grateful for our friendship. Well, thank you. And I've also learned a little bit about my place in the universe because uh, I think the way you think connects everybody and everything, not just people, but different animals and living things and the universe. And, and I, I like that way of thinking because it it's very comforting to think of yourself as part of the whole rather than focus on yourself as a uh, separate thing and a separate individual. And so I, um, I also enjoy our friendship very much. Is the picture of the world the look of it? Or is it our way of looking? If reality is shaped by our perceptions, it becomes even more critical to listen to others and how they see the world in order to expand our own ideas. After all, that's what trends are for. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. Our story editor is Sam Dingman. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. We're most grateful to you for helping grow our community of listeners. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. <laughs>